Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Today is Tuesday, August the 8th. It's 8-8. If you're Frank Frigluzzi, the former FBI uh, assistant director of counterintelligence, this day has vast significance to you in your white supremacy ladled brain. But for those of us who are regular people, it does not. It's simply a Tuesday, and it's a Tuesday when our government is engaging in malfeasance and going after regular citizens and infringing in the second or the First Amendment protected activities like the freedom to assemble, the freedom of the press. Not surprising to any of you. Before we get into my guest today, we're going to be bringing on Steve Baker. He uh, joined me for my first and probably longest video uh, interview where we went over three hours, where we were going into Joe Rogan territory. We had to break it up into three pieces for you. And I will put the link below when we finish the show so you guys can go see that if you haven't seen the original discussion we have. But we're going to bring it back on because there's been some important developments. And one of the things that we know is that the FBI listens to this podcast. And if we are going to thumb our nose at anybody, we are going to do it here on this show. So thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks for being part of the show. Let me uh, pay some bills real quick and say thanks to my folks over at Catholic Vote. You guys know that you can sign up for The Loop. There's my copy of The Loop right there coming straight out of my email. I'm going to look at my phone here today, Tuesday the 8th. We've got issue number one is on the ballot in Ohio. Folks, if you want to go out and vote on that, check out The Loop. First of all, you just go to catholicvote.org, put in your email address and your zip code. You'll find out that you can uh, go vote in Ohio on their constitutional amendment about abortion rights, trying to get rid of that or trying to add it rather. Very important stuff. Uh, Library director resigns over pornography in Virginia libraries. I think that's going to be relevant to you all. The Boston mayor is is banning gas power in city work. Fantastic. That seems like a real smart move by Mayor Wu, the Democrat out there. And uh, a couple of things about the Gallup poll, the the resurgence, and what we're seeing is more and more LGBTQ plus people identifying in every generation. There's a whole list of stuff like that. Handful of others, cashless society, the fears that we have, um, Australia as a harbinger for some of the ills that are coming down the line, and a new Loopcast, which is their podcast. So check out The Loop. Uh, go see my friends over there. And uh, of course, you can always join uh, our our free the merch type, our free the cup type. Rand's actually got his in his post office box. I don't know if he actually went and grabbed it, but you can go to Patriot Coolers dot com patriotcoolers.com with promo code kyle k-y-l-e or click in the show notes right below here you'll be able to do it you don't even have to load the promo code i've actually got it loaded in there for you you'll get 10 percent off so if you see something you like there by all means check it out uh without too much further ado i want to bring on mr steve baker the pragmatic constitutionalist who has a, uh, a locals account you can find we'll add that to the uh, to the notes steve thanks for joining me bud and uh, i see that you are wearing your team colors today you're on team oh, cia yeah. apparently Absolutely. I'm uh, I am part of the agency, the the agency, as it is known by those of us who work in the government. Uh, would you say that you trust the CIA now more than you do the FBI? Um, I'll tell you what, the only the only possible rationale for that is that still technically the CIA is supposed to work overseas more than here domestically. So maybe I guess so. Yeah. I've got buddies who are who are CIA whistleblowers who literally told me that they have more faith in the agency that they've blown the whistle on that has fired them than the agency I used to work for. That is amazing. That's scary stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, as far as I know, I haven't been moved on by the CIA yet, but I have been moved on by the FBI. So 
I have a real problem with your former uh, organization. Yeah, you and me both. All right, um, let me just start off by asking folks, if you are in the live chat, and many of you are, if you want to add a question, you'd like something answered that Steve may have a unique perspective on, please add it in the comments below. So scroll below the live chat, put it in the comments. It's easier for Ryan to screenshot them and bring them on screen later on, and we'll get to those as they come down. And uh, why don't we start off with just letting people know a little bit about who you are. Not everybody saw the original interview we did, although we spent an awful lot of time on it. So give people a rundown, maybe, um, you know, from your early youth and then uh, kind of how you ended up sitting here on the show again. My, my early youth. Well, before I start that, I will tell you, uh, all of your viewers, they need to go listen to that first uh, interview. That was actually one of the most enjoyable interviews I've ever done because we went pretty deep. Yeah, that we had a lot a, of fun there. Yeah, especially by the time we got to the third segment, third hour. We were we were into some pretty deep esoteric stuff, so I enjoyed it. That's true, and and also we were deep in the bladder territory where it was we were going to have a, a a time clock have to run That's out. Right. That's right. Well, my you know uh, my uh, my youth. You know, if, I, if I have to start there, no, I, I'm a I'm a lifelong musician. I have um, um, been a trumpet player and vocalist most of my adult life. I uh, started touring when I was a kid. I left school at 19 to go on the road and uh, travel all over the world and did that sort of thing. In the process of that, I got involved with some organizations that were uh, uh, doing um, work behind the Iron Curtain, uh, ministry organizations, missionary organizations. Mm -hmm. I, I got involved with groups that were, you know, smuggling uh, printing press uh, parts and um, uh, you know, tape duplicating machines, recording gear, all this kind of stuff to support the underground dissident movement inside the Soviet Union. And uh, that's a long story in and of itself. But then uh, while I'm doing all of that and traveling back and forth from being on the road and being home in my home state of Louisiana, my father's also a private investigator. So this whole thing of uh, is in my blood. It's, a, it's kind of a, a DNA type thing that's been handed to me. And then I started uh, uh, writing just as a hobby uh, back in the 80s. And then and when we, by, the time, by the time the internet came around, I was uh, flourishing online. I, you know, started off on CompuServe and AOL, and then all of that became uh, MySpace, and then MySpace became Facebook, and then Facebook became a blog, and here, here we are today. Right. And so, so you know, that was that was the, the kind of the genesis of this. But for most of my quote unquote writing uh, career and political analysis and commentary and that that sort of thing, that was just a hobby for me, and it wasn't until. Uh, COVID came to town and they um, locked the country down and particularly here in North Carolina where I live now, I wasn't allowed to work for a year and a half. I mean, live music is my business. It's what I do to pay my bills and it's what I, I have done for most of my life. So I was suddenly not allowed to work. And so after you know two, two weeks to flatten the curve became two months. And then I realized it could be as long as two years. I thought, well, I better, I better monetize this hobby of mine. And so I kicked that into high gear, started doing that. And, you know, I did, it didn't really change anything that I was doing other than obviously I was obsessed with COVID and writing and investigating um, all, all things related to that, uh, uh, that farce. But when, when uh, uh, January 6th rolled around, that was just part of my schedule. You know, by then I was writing full time, you know, I wasn't playing music. So I was, I was traveling the country, meeting with my bloggers uh, or my blog followers all over the country. I during the lockdowns, I traveled to 28 states yeah. and we would have meetings in defiance. You know, we, we like you know, we would create speakeasies where they didn't exist and uh, we would meet up. And um, what were those uh, meetings like out of curiosity, too? 
it was phenomenal. It, it, you know, the, the, the very interesting thing about those meetings, um, some of them were in people's homes. Some of them were in businesses that weren't open because they were locked down, but they, but the owner would open them for us. Uh, some of them were out in, you know, rural counties. So, uh, so it would be outside of a major city where they were completely locked down, but then they would be in a county where the sheriff didn't enforce the lockdowns, mm-hmm. which happened all over the country, as you know. And so that, those were the kinds of places that we would meet. And of course it was, it was liberating for everybody because, you know, we weren't able to do anything back home depending upon where your home was. And so for most people, this was a liberating time uh, to, to be able just to go out and, and meet with other people. So it was yeah. Really- isn't, isn't it so interesting that uh, just meeting up with strangers and sharing ideas was the defiance. And in many ways, it's probably a lot like what you were doing when you were running around behind the iron curtain where you're running around the Soviet union. I mean, you got to experience tyranny on, on two fronts. I'm sure you probably didn't expect it coming back home to the United States though. No, I, I, I never did. And, and in fact, I'll tell you a quick story. I was sitting in a, um, a dissident leader's home in Tallinn, Estonia. This was 1983. You say in Estonia? Um, in Estonia. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the Estonian Soviet Socialist Republic back then. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I was, I was secreted to his home, um, uh, by just, I mean, just like you would see in a movie. I mean, they, uh, they, I, I met in a cafe and then they, we jumped in a cab and then from a cab, we got on a, a trolley and then from a trolley into a private car and from a private car back into another cab. And then finally after dark, we end up at this uh, leader's home. All the lights were out. The, the windows of course were covered. And then uh, after sitting by myself in his living room for quite some time, he comes wandering out um, from the dark back room and he walks and he sits at uh, the couch across from me and, and he, he holds up a pen just like this, it's actually a pencil. And he says, he said, um, here, this is what the government tells us that truth looks like. He said, but because we can get finished television across the, you know, the Baltic from here, we know that truth looks like this. And man, I've never forgotten that, and I never dreamed that I would be living that today here in our own country. Where the government literally is spinning truth and trying to uh, to influence public perception. I think they've always done that. So I'm kind of curious. My, my dad is in his mid-70s or early to mid-70s, and, and I'm in my early 40s, and you're kind of in between there. I grew up with a fundamental distrust of the government. I think my dad grew up with the opposite of that, but kind of saw that you know, growing during the Vietnam anti-war movements and so on. What was your feeling about the government's involvement and, and whether or not they would be truthful with the citizens in the United States as you grew up? Well, when when I grew up, I think that we were all much more trusting. First of all, um, we may not have liked the other political side, depending upon which side of the aisle you uh, you voted for, but we were more trusting that okay, all right, the other guys won, but they're going to tell us the truth and they're going to take care of us and they're going to be uh, they're going to be somewhat forthright and honest. Well, obviously, uh, we had our scandals. Uh, Watergate was you know when I was in junior high school and um, and and of course then we you know we had to go through uh, the end of the Vietnam War in '75 and then we had to go through uh, the Carter administration and then suddenly things began to as I grew you know I was growing older I was growing more aware. Mm-hmm. And, and becoming more perceptive, I think, of, of the reality that one of the inherent functions of government is, as you mentioned before, is just to color the truth. Uh, they're not going to be honest with us um, on, a, uh, on a macro sense by any means. Uh, they, they can justify any lie, and they'll do it for, for secure, you know, national security reasons or, or, or uh, uh, oh, God, I mean, look, look at where we're 
look look at what we're facing right now and in terms of what they're they're trying to spend for security reasons and then the uh, uh, the other real re the other reality is is that once you get a little bit older and you become even a little bit more aware you you become uh, uh, much more attuned to the fact that they're probably not telling you the truth about anything at at least everything as you said has a spin to it to some degree and to some extent and that's coming from every side and that's been you know that's been the most uh, stark realization in my career uh, as a as a writer and as someone who is now moving in the circles and meeting with Congress members and meeting with congressional staff members on a regular basis um, you you just don't know what is uh, real what's not and what's you don't know what's being taken back and you don't you don't know when they look you right in the face and tell you how serious they are about you know, uh, following through on this particular issue, you've made your impact. You've seen their eyes light up. You've seen them drop their jaw when you tell them that you know something they need to know. And then they, you know, they write down your name and your number and they give it to a staffer and say, call him. And then you don't ever hear from that staffer again. I think that's the big thing where you feel like you've made the impact like a normal right. human being would. If you and I had had that impact made on us, then we would be making that call in a, in a couple of days. And, and then yeah. there's nothing, there's just no follow through. Uh, I'm, get, I'm getting somewhere with this. So what was your relationship growing up? You said your dad is a private investigator. What was your relationship with the FBI, even, either by reputation or, or any interactions with it uh, until 2021? Well, you know, my, my perception of the FBI came from Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. And, uh, you know, in the, the, the 1960s, 70s television series, I grew up with that. And that's I am that old. And so uh, they were the good guys. And then, of course, the untouchables, you know, Elliot Ness. I was I mean, I was all over that and played by Robert Stack. That was awesome. Uh, so that that was the kind of thing that I grew up with. And uh, my perception is, is that they were, you know, they were the white hat guys out there and that there was uh, you know, if there was if there was truth, justice in the American way, it was going to be uh, uh, performed and or executed by those guys. And, and certainly you, you thought of maybe these guys as being a little bit spookier, um, in, in the background there. And then when I was working uh, behind the iron curtain, I, I, well, I, I'm the only guy that I know in my entire life who's ever been strip searched by the KGB. Well, you're looking at him. I don't know if you know anybody who has been, but not off the top of my head, but, uh, that's, I've, that's, I've, that's, I've, I've run in enough circles. I probably could find somebody right. as well. You're probably not right, unique in probably, that, but it's not common. Right. You probably could. But point being is, is that I was engaged in activities that eventually led to that. Yeah, sure. So um, that I certainly during that time thought that these guys in the FBI were the good guys. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a natural it'd be hard to do a lot of the things that you were involved in or think the way that we did, I think, up until very recently. How much has uh, post January 6th shaded your your impression of of what our government is involved in? Um. I have a new axiom related to January 6th that came afterward. I, I, I have, I have lots of operational working axioms in my writing career. My first, my, my first lead line is always, uh, as a, as a, basically as a political libertarian is that there's the world we want versus the world in which we actually live. And I say that, and that's why I, I call myself a pragmatist is there is the world that we want. Uh, I, if you put me, if you, if I took the test, you know, I'm, I'm probably a political anarchist, but I'm, I'm more rational than that. And I know that that's just as unworkable in humanity and human nature as is communism, that neither of those extremes work. 
Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's the world that I want, but that's not the world in which we live. We don't live in a world where we can have open borders. And of course, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a libertarian flag. Well, yeah, I would love a world with open borders. I would love a world that was safe enough that we could have open borders. We don't live in that world. So that's what that axiom means. But the one related to January 6th that popped up since then was that <laughs> uh, I will never again believe anything that I don't see with my own eyes. But then check the videotape. Because what you saw, it's not necessarily what actually happened to. That's correct. Because I took hours worth of video that day. And it wasn't until after I did, you know, five days of frame by frame analysis of my own video that I just became aware of what was going on in that crowd. Sure. Well, I had a a book of quotes I grew up with. It was like one of those toilet reading books. You know, you reach back and you read a quote from famous people. And one of them that I've always uh, it stuck with me since I was a teenager was if you uh, if you want to know what history is go talk to two different people that were involved in an automobile accident and then try to figure out whether anybody knows what happened. Yeah. Uh, and it's something to that effect. I'm, I'm, I'm butchering it in a little way. Sure. But but essentially, the, the fact that we all bring a, a significant lens to whatever happened and we brought our emotions and our expectations and our assumptions to it. And then, you know, then there's what actually happened on the videotape, like you just mentioned. Yeah. Uh, I put out a, a, a tweet earlier this week, and I think it got some traction because I think it resonates with a lot of people. It upset a lot of people as well. But one of the things that I, I've been sort of musing on, you know, the, the, the sphere of Twitter is like, how, how condensed can you get an interesting idea? And what I said was, is the United States I grew up in would have invaded the United States that I live in. <laughs> what do you think about that? Uh, you know, be, again, being a libertarian, I would hope that we would not have invaded, but I think we would have probably been compelled to respond and attack probably in a treaty we had with somebody because of the malfeasance that the United States that we live in today is participating in, in their country. So we probably would have had a, had a treaty with somebody that we would have had to attack. I just, I, I, I see things like urgent fury. I see things like just cause as sort of examples from the eighties. And I was a little kid from a lot of that, but I still have recollections. I actually jumped out of an airplane at uh, Fort Benning on the 20 year, 20 year. Yeah. The 20 year anniversary of, um, of just cause. With guys oh, yeah. who jumped into Panama, so I had yeah. jumped, you know, guys from my from my stick were, were were jumpers in there as well, and they were doing kind of a memorial jump. And I don't know for some reason it's just, you know, when you start stepping into the banana republic realm and you start delegitimizing all these these institutions that we sort of grew up trusting. I mean, even in the '80s and '90s, I grew up trusting these things in the way that you probably remember as well. Oh yeah, and yeah. then. And, and even things like Ruby Ridge, even though they bothered me, and even things like Waco, which my dad was intricately uh, you know, involved in, uh, having talked to the guys inside the compound, it still didn't shake me the way that I feel like what's been going on with January 6th has shaken me. I, I have uh, one of my closest friends in the world. I don't remember whether we mentioned him in my uh, our, our three-hour marathon previously, but he's a um, uh, wounded veteran, uh, lost an arm in um, uh, the Sinai Desert, he stepped on a landmine on a peacekeeping mission back after Anwar Sadat was assassinated. What was mm-hmm. that, 81 or 82, somewhere in there. And we, he was a um, uh, ranger um, and also a 101st Airborne. And he was a lieutenant leading a recon in the desert. And he triggered one of those, um, what do they call them, bouncing Bettys or, yep. you know, jumping Judy's, whatever the hell they call <laughs> So Yeah, bouncing Bettys uh, is what I've always heard them called. So, he, tr- he triggered that, and then he ordered his um, guys to retrace their steps and get out of the minefield that they had wandered into. And this was a, a mine that had been planted in the Yom Kippur War back in 69. Mm-hmm. And 
so the circuitry had degraded just enough that once he his guys were clear and he made a break for it to try to get away, expecting to die. But he was he managed to get far enough away. It didn't kill him, but it took his arm off, almost took one of his legs off. He's 100% deaf uh, even today. He has, you know, the cochlear implants, uh, tons of other, you know, uh, medical problems related to that. Uh, he's lost a half of a foot from that as, as well. Let me just jump in to tell people what this what this landmine situation is. So it's a it's a spring loaded explosive device that lives under the ground. It's buried down there. And then when you put enough pressure on it, a human pressure, it activates the spring release. So when you let lift a foot, it bounces up chest high, waist high, face high, etc. to make the most explosive as opposed to blowing up from the ground where you get a limited cone of explosion. It gets up and, and detonates so that it causes the most amount of damage. Really nasty stuff. Um, things that people are not supposed to use in most war zones right now. I think they actually yeah. had one of those things in Bad Boys too. Now that I think about it, uh, in in that scene at Guantanamo, but it, it's a horrific device. And to be standing there, basically on something you assume is going to kill you, is um, it's yeah. got to be probably one of the most harrowing decisions. And of course, heroic to have your guys walk back out of it and run. But that's that's what we're yeah. talking about. Okay, so he he lost so, an arm. He's so, and he's yeah, he's so th- he, thoroughly uh, banged up. Yeah, he. I mean, he uh, he thought he was going to die he he uh he was air vac to israel uh the israeli doctors were much more uh experienced back in that era with uh, that type of trauma and they saved his life and um uh years later i mean guys had an incredibly productive life even you know as a double amputee and has uh i mean he's scuba diver he owns two boats he's had a you know a great career otherwise and he um he told me uh when we were watching some of the results of these uh this these Oath Keeper trials, for instance, related to January 6th. And we were together and he just broke down and he just started bawling. I mean, he was so upset by that because he saw what the government was doing to these innocent men and the manipulation. And he said, this is this the country that I gave up this for? Right. No, it has to be truly troubling. Uh, and I think a lot of veterans are looking in the same way. And that's what that was so troubling about that particular day. Give people a uh, background, and we'll, then we'll dig into the modern uh, the updates to it. But uh, you know, what was your involvement in January sixth, and kind of the the Cliff Notes version, or if you want to put the bullet points out there so people can kind of do it, and then I'll I'll refer them back to our, our long form because we talked about that obviously at length. Yeah, yeah. The 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 real quick uh, elevator pitch on that is that is that uh, as I said, I was now out of work in my other job, so I moved my uh, political analysis and writing and commentary investigative work into the, you know, the captain's chair of my life. And so uh, January 6th was put on the calendar, you know, Trump announced something wild was going to happen on December 19th of 2020. And uh, me and another uh, very successful writer friend of mine from uh, here in Raleigh, we decided to uh, go up together and, and uh, check it out. I, you know, I had, I had no idea what to expect that day. I was, I was thinking maybe because there was all of this talk about the, the, you know, the election potential election fraud and that they had all these investigations that they do uh, had been doing and that there was going to eventually be the release of the Kraken. If you remember that, yep. I thought, okay, well, if they're going to release the Kraken, it's gotta be on January 6th, you know, we're, we're down, <laughs> we're down to the, you know, down to the two weeks before the actual inauguration of uh, uh, president elect Biden at that point. So if they're going to release a crack and it better be there. So uh, we loaded up uh, in my car and we rode up to DC and, you know, got a, got a room in Arlington, did that whole routine, went over there the next morning, froze our butts off and, and you know, at 30 mile an hour crosswind and January Wednesday, uh, we, we were completely unimpressed with every person that was on the stage. Um, me not being a 
Trump supporter, more so uh, than even my friend. And then uh, we decided about halfway through Trump's speech to start working our way towards the Capitol building, uh, which thousands of people were already peeling off and doing that at the time because there were announced events that day. And this is something a lot of Americans don't understand is that there were scheduled permitted events at the Capitol right. um, to follow. And, and Trump, um, he, he messed up even those because he messed up the schedule because he didn't take the stage until an hour late down at the ellipse. He was scheduled to speak at 11 and the first events were to begin uh, around 1230 or, or one, uh, at the Capitol. And it's quite a long walk. And the, you know, there was no car traffic open that day because of the size of the crowds and it being a major protest day. Yep. So the, the bottom line is that, um, uh, by the time we got to the Capitol, uh, it was already after one o'clock. Uh, Trump was still on stage. He didn't leave the stage till one sixteen p.m. And we could see the uh, we could see the from our vantage point near the reflection pool, the Peace Mon Monument area. We could see the uh, hear the flashbangs. We could see the tear smoke. We could see arrival of um, D.C. Metro Police. Their their fluorescent uh, fluorescent vest coming down the steps. Uh, you know, feverishly arriving and there's sirens going off and we're like, oh, man, what is going on? And I looked at my buddy. I said, well, that's where we're headed. And we, we raced it up there to the West Terrace. And by the time we got there, the, our, the, the battle had already been engaged for some time, you know, because the first, the first barricade breach was at 12.52, 12.53 p.m. I turned my camera on at 1.19. So um, it was, you know, nearly you know, it was over 25 minutes after violence had begun before I started filming. And then once uh, uh, I captured about an hour's worth of video, uh, not knowing that there had been a breach now of the building itself, but there was now a free flow of humanity going up the, uh, the steps there where those you've seen the, the scaffolding that were covered with canvas that had been ripped off by the protesters. And now people are just moving up uh, as freely as, you know, in, in a mall. And I, I finally joined behind several hundred people and went up there myself. When I got to the upper terrace, I look over and there's hundreds of people moving into the building. And so I, of course, never saw the breach of the building, never saw why the doors were open. Uh, but once that was um, clear that people were going in, I joined in the line and went in. And so I started the process of, of doing nothing more than behaving as a journalist. In fact, I've seen myself on Capitol CCTV stopping and taking notes. I would, you know, video, I'd take my backpack off. I had a, I had a, uh, I had my camera gear. I had a, you know, a tripod. I had, you know, extra batteries. I had my man on the street microphone because yep. that was what I was planning on doing that day was interviewing people about if the Kraken got, uh, you know, unleashed. I had no idea that this was going to happen, but I had to, you know, my instincts were to follow the story where the story went. So I, uh, you can, as I said, you could see me in the, in, inside the, the Capitol building. I'll, People are moving around and I've, I've shut my camera off and I've got my phone out. And I'm standing against a wall typing for 10 or 15 minutes. I don't even remember doing that, talking about memories, of, you know, in a, a right crime or something like that. How, how yeah. What was the, the physiological sensation of being there? What was the, uh, the either the sympathetic reactions or, you know, you know, what were your your memories that you do have? What do you remember the feeling of being in that crowd? Well, when the when I when I first started filming on the battle line uh, on the West Terrace, but my, my feelings were, I, I had, I had no, um, uh, I, I would say I had no identifiable emotions of any kind. It was just, I had one intention and that was to capture the best that I could on film. 
because I knew that history was being made. You, know? you didn't have a team that you were going, you know, go police, go rioters, or go no. go Trump no. guys. No, because because I I had uh, as I said I I didn't know what I was seeing except you know because your mind can only take in about five percent in a highly violent kinetic situation like that. And then you're looking through a small lens anyway. And then when you start getting hit by pepper spray and you start getting hit, you know, you're downwind from, from this spray. I was never doing anything to have it aimed at me because I was never assaulting police officers or attacking the, the line in any way. But down when you got a 30 mile an hour North wind coming and you're on the South side of that, you're going to catch some of it. Sure. And so I, I eventually moved over to the North side so I could avoid that spray, which put me in that position underneath where that scaffolding was. And, um, and now I'm over where some really violent activity is taking place. And now the guys over there, they've got the, the rubber bullet guns. They've got the, you know, the, 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 the grenade, the flashbang grenades, all of the, the quote unquote, less than lethal munitions that they were using, including those big tank, you know, tanks of pepper spray. And so I've got, you know, camera in one hand and my eyeballs on those guys with those big tanks of pepper spray. So, cause I, I do, I don't want to be near anybody deserving of uh, him pulling the trigger on them. So your, your brain can only take in so much. So there was a protective nature going on right there. Um, uh, you know, self-preservation. I did get hit by one of the flashbangs. It, it exploded about three feet off to my right. Um, shrapnel came up, hit me. I had a bruise on the side of my knee for about six months after that. Uh, so just being in the area, there were there were those kinds of concerns, but I didn't have any. I I felt no political oriented sensations whatsoever until I left the building. Because when I left the building, I saw the and filmed and videoed the extraction of Ashley Babbitt out of the building by the EMT units, and uh, I I'm the only cameraman that did capture that. So many people will have seen that footage and uh, and it's out there in lots of different places, as we know. Uh, let me just before we go and, and talk about inside the building, because I think that's going to be critical to discussion why DOJ is interested in you. I think I think um, we got a uh, we had a question that was put out there by Jigsaw Massacre, one of our regulars says, did you witness the flare being shot over the Capitol building at 245, 3 p.m.? And if so, do you have any idea what its purpose was? 2:45. No, I was inside the building. Okay, so at that point, you're you're marching around inside. Okay, fair enough. All right, so you're inside. Oh, Let's be clear. We got we got to be really precise in our speech here. Yep. I was not marching. Yes, you you were I walking around and, and observing and, and uh, documenting things as a journalist. Marching and parading is an actual misdemeanor charge. Isn't that amazing that we're in such a strange, silly world of that? All right, uh, my buddy Steve Friend mentioned, and I know he, you've talked to him at length, and and one of the things he said is that you you're going to be charged for. Um, for upsetting a bench inside the Capitol. And and, uh, and and that was one of the things that I think that they were really honed in on. You've been interviewed by the FBI at least once that I'm aware of. Was there yes. another interview? There was an attempted interview that was aborted uh, prior to my actual two-hour interview in which uh, my attorney and I showed up at the field office here in Raleigh. And they uh, met us at the door and said, hey, we may not be able to do this interview today. And Okay. They said, just give us a few minutes. We'll be back in about 10 minutes. Uh, we're on the phone uh, determining whether we can do this or not. And I had no idea what was going on. So they went back in the back. We sat in the lobby and uh, they actually, it took them about a half hour before they came out. And when they came out, they said, yeah, we can't do this. Uh, you know, because of your status as a journalist press where we, we can't do this interview without express written permission from the uh, U.S. Attorney General's office. I, I didn't even know such a code existed. 
in the federal code, but it actually does. And so um, as a result of that, it took about another two months, actually over two months before we actually did the interview because it took that long for the letter uh, to, of uh, approval from the U.S. Attorney's Office and the negotiation with my attorney and then the final proper letter that, was, that we agreed to uh, for the interview. All right. And then you've had recent contact. This is obviously why we're back out here talking about this again. So we've entitled this episode, The Subpoena. Mm -hmm. um, you had a text message. It showed up on Twitter uh, that you posted from your attorney. Just yep. walk people through what that was, what the emotions were of getting it, and then what it turned out to be. Yeah. Uh, it's like 1025 AM this past Friday, I get a text from my attorney who, and it's my Raleigh attorney, not my DC attorney. Uh, telling me that he was contacted by the one of the agents that interviewed me uh, two years ago and said that um, um, they had a service of process that they needed to get to me and did they need to go through him or, or uh, execute that right directly to me so he said well, I don't know you let me let me uh, let me check with Steve so he he called me right up and or I called him right back from the text and I uh, uh, you know what the heck's going on here, man? He said, "I, well, I don't know. I have no idea what it is. It's just they, they noticed me, notified me of service process, and I said, uh, yeah, um, call them back, tell them you'll take it, but ask them what the hell it is.' <laughs> and it turns out it is a uh, subpoena uh, from the district court there in D.C. demanding access, not access, but demanding copies of all my videos that I took on January sixth. Now that doesn't sound so ominous, except if there's a problem couple of key legal technical details you you might be intimately aware of the first thing is is this is a grand jury subpoena a grand jury is not seated for misdemeanor charges right only for felony charges even in january 6 cases you, you know your your former colleagues may swat people for misdemeanor charges but they are not sent there by a grand jury decision sure the other problem with this subpoena, once it was um, picked up by my attorney yesterday morning, is that this particular subpoena is signed by the actual uh, assistant U.S. attorney who was handling my case over 20 months ago, meaning after my D.C. attorney saw it, and he called me up and he said, okay, he said, uh, you probably already figured it out, but this is not good. And I said, okay, why is it not good? And he said, well, three levels. Number one, as you know, um, if there's a grand jury looking at you, it's not for a misdemeanor. It's for some felony. Second thing is the fact that this particular uh, AUSA is the signatory means that this is your case. They're not looking at your videos for somebody else's crime or, or case or, you know. And I said, okay, well, you know, you know, well, what's, what's the third thing? He said, well, he said, the other thing that makes it evident that they're looking at you is that, is that if they were looking at you specifically, um, they would have to subpoena only your, uh, tools of trade, the video itself, they can't subpoena you on your case. Right. So they can't bring the suspect into the grand jury. Mm -hmm. He said that that means he said that they are, in fact, he could, because if this was just a witness testimony, if they just needed to know what you saw and you needed to authenticate your video, they could just call you in to testify on somebody else's case. He said the fact that they're calling your video in means they're looking at you. 
So three yeah. steps. Yeah. So let me just break that down. Three steps. You're saying one felony because it's a grand jury. Okay. I can get behind that Two, You're saying that there is uh, it's targeting you specifically because the assistant United States attorney, the prosecutor that was looking at you initially is the one who signed off on the subpoena. And right. then the third is because they are not asking you to testify. It is likely specifically about you. They're just getting information data that you have and not your personal testimony. Correct. I think I think it's a fair I think it's a fair guess. Um, that is still kind of an educated guess. Obviously, it's not conclusive, yeah. right? But um, it is not it is not conclusive from the subpoena itself. Sure. Um, but you and I both know that I've been really hard on them for the last twenty months, <laughs> as as is appropriate. Right. Now, right, there's some yeah. interesting things in the subpoena, and, and I think you have it in front of you, or you have at least the yeah. text of it. Do you want to Do you want to read some of that interesting stuff? Because I think people will find that to be the most um, concerning. Yeah, I, I want to, and, and I'm absolutely going to be straight up front with this, is that back in our, uh, following my original FBI interview, let me, let me, I should probably lay the groundwork for this, is that following my original interview, uh, it was another month before my attorney received an actual letter or email from uh, the assistant U.S. attorney that was assigned my case. Mm -hmm. Her name is Anita Eve. She's out of Philadelphia. And she actually... Uh, sent him the email on November 17th of 2021, in which she said, your client, that would be me, is going to be charged within the week. That was her, that's an exact quote. And we and we talked about it just after that. Yes, yes. So your client is going to be charged within the week. This was uh, November 21. So that's almost two years ago. Mm -hmm. And then... We uh, did a, a media offensive, uh, did press releases, sent out about 200 press releases to media uh, sources of all sizes. And, and uh, then we, we, um, I, I engaged my D.C. attorney that same week. I actually, for the first time, had a congress member, a senator, call me. Senator Ron Johnson called me on Tuesday night of that week and uh, asked how he could help. Uh, that's, how, that's how fast the word got out. And, and then... And then on the follow the Monday following Thanksgiving of 2021, my new attorney, um, who was a 22 year former federal prosecutor himself, he contacted Anita Eve, who he is with has acquaintance with, and uh, sent her an email. First thing said, "I'm now representing Mr. Baker, and uh, I would love to talk." And then she didn't respond, so he placed a phone call to her on the Monday after Thanksgiving. She did not respond. And we never heard from them again for 20 months. Over 20 months has passed until this Friday. And they all all of a sudden popped up again. Now, you, yeah, and, and you've had something of an obsession about January 6th since then, I think rightly so. Can you talk about some of the things that you've been digging into in the uh, in the interim that may have uh, triggered some, some animosity from DOJ? Well, for, first of all... Um, if, if you start in my, my earliest work, I was certainly looking at some of the, um, uh, those odd bird characters in the crowd who nobody been able to figure out who they are yet. You know, there's a lot, I spent a lot of time obsessing over the interesting unindicted, um, provocateurs that were in the crowd and have written stories about some, some have, who have been identified since and some who haven't, mm -hmm. some who have been identified and are still not arrested, some who have been identified and are now um, on the lam overseas, thing, things of that nature. And so then, of course, uh, it ended up, as my investigative trails um, uh, naturally developed, I ended up in relationship with 
quite a few of the Capitol Police officers into de developing whistleblowers out of the Capitol Police, some who have actually come out and become whistleblowers, and then others, of course, who are still unnamed sources that would, would come out if they genuinely believe they would get protection uh, for, for doing so. What do they think will happen, out of curiosity? What's like, that? What, what do they think will happen if they come and speak out, and, and what do they base that on from your, Every your discussions? Every single one of them who has either come out or not says, our lives will be destroyed. And this is despite the fact that in the last two weeks, there's been two separate House administration committee meetings in which the existing House, um, uh, um, existing Capitol Police Board, as well as the new uh, police chief, have both promised the country, you know, right there on C-SPAN, right coming out right out of, you know, the, 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 the hearing rooms, that whistleblowers will be respected, they will be protected, and that is of a, utmost importance to them to be sure that the rights and the protections and the procedures are followed for capital whistleblowers, to which, of course, I get on the phone with the acquaintances that I've made within both retired and otherwise uh, within the United States Capitol Police, and they all had exactly the same word for what those men said in those hearing rooms. Bullshit. Yeah, it sounds a lot like what Chris Ray said. Yeah, I don't, and, 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 I, and I, I don't have to send them a script. That's the first phrase that comes out of their mouth. Yeah, and so nobody has any faith in the whistleblower protections because we know no. there's no teeth in them. And no. I'm, I'm assuming they're seeing what's happened to other people. They've seen what's happened to you guys. They've seen the, you know, the, they've seen the weaponization committee hearings and the way that they were treated, uh, obviously, particularly by the, the Democrats on that committee, but also how you guys have been treated otherwise. Uh, they've seen the, uh, the IRS whistleblowers and how yep. they were treated. They, I mean, look, even even the 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 Twitter files guys, you know, uh, Taibbi and Schellenberger and all they're, they're, to have to have congressmen calling them so-called journalists. Right. You know, and and, and I'm like, uh, hello, you know, me, too. Right. We're about a me, too movement right now. Yeah. And and so the, these are the these are the kinds of things that they're they're that those guys are up against. And then I don't know where we left off on, on my particular story here, getting to where we are today. But when we got the, um, when I, when I got the, Oh, I, no, I've got to, I got to go back to, I've got to go back to November of, uh, of 21 because there was an exchange between my attorney, my Raleigh attorney and this, um, uh, assistant U S attorney. And part of that exchange was, was when my press release went out on the Monday of Thanksgiving week, that went out at 9 a.m. on Monday morning, Thanksgiving of 2021. By 1.15, she already had a copy of the press release because she's monitoring my comms, or somebody is. Sure. And she sent a copy of that press release to my attorney and said, we're not happy about this. To which my, my attorney responded, well, why are you saying that my client should forego, forego his First Amendment right to talk about the persecution that he's uh, potentially about to undergo from the federal government? To which she responded and said, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that a judge who eventually handles his case will not look favorably upon this. And so I'm just you know, concerned for him. Let's, let's hang right. in that little space for just a moment, if you would. All right. So the First Amendment says that Congress can make no law that uh, bridges our, our freedom of speech and assembly and the press and so on, right? And so we have this belief that the government is not supposed to weigh in on that arena. And right. yet over and over, 
That's what we see. Like, there's no other way around it. The FBI is involved in First Amendment protected activities, whether it's going after, you know, uh, parents at school board meetings who are speaking out and have that right or people that are in a Catholic church that want to do the Latin mass. And and that's their you know, they, they should be free from government intervention or journalists who are engaging in a traditionally protected activity of covering newsworthy events. Right. I mean, was there ever a time that you recall journalists were being prosecuted for being, let's say, on the wrong side of a riot when they were capturing footage of said riot. No, and and of course, just being a journalist is not carte blanche to be anywhere at any time. You know, whether whether we're talking about state law as it applies to journalistic activities or federal law, you, you do, in fact, not have the right to cross a restricted area line or, pri- or, or to enter a private uh, facility sure. without from whoever owns that, you know, that, that, uh, property. And, and the same thing is true of, even if it's an arbitrary restriction at the Capitol that day, I mean, they were under quote unquote COVID protocols. So technically the Capitol was not open to the public. And then technically, even though the Capitol police had issued permits for protest on the lawns and indeed on the steps of the Capitol, which were then set up arbitrarily inside restricted, uh, spaces, um, it still doesn't technically give a, a journalist a right to access there. On the other hand, as is uh, adjudicated, you know, innumerable times, both state and federally, is that when a journalist does safely and uh, behaving themselves uh, professionally, does follow a a, um, uh, a riot, a crowd, or, or a crime scene into a restricted area, they're generally, it's like, okay, you know, we understand why there, there's that kind of newsworthy exception that has always yeah, sort of existed. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Okay. And, not, and, not, and, and there are exceptions to that as well. There are times when uh, their journalists have been prosecuted for, uh, uh, for trespassing. Sure. Now, one of my acquaintances, uh, Bill Shipley, who's been defending a lot of January Sixers and has taken on and set up sort of legal defense for them, former federal prosecutor, yep. has articulated the following. And I think it I think it's worth noting that in his view, and I, and I think it's the right view. The federal government doesn't have any skin in the outcome of a prosecution that people like me who did my old job, their job is to go out and uncover whatever truth it is, build whatever the strongest case it is, including exculpatory evidence if if that exists. And they are supposed to put that out. And the judge's job is to mediate things fairly and to make sure that they are um, in, you know, consistent due process is, is done. And the prosecutor's job is to mount a credible prosecution and the defense's job is to make the best defense possible and the jury's job is to sort out which is true which is false and whether it meets the standard as given by pattern jury instructions and nobody really has any skin in the outcome the outcome is sort of supposed to be um, outside of the emotional realm of whether or not we won or we lost it's not about that sort of thing or the financial realm all of those things are not supposed to really come into it. There's not a punishment aspect of the of the prosecution. We don't really we're supposed to be agnostic in right. in the way that the, the process is meted out. In fact, the government's only interest, according to Bill Shipley, and I think is very, very interesting, is that fair process is supposed to be done. That's the government's primary interest. The rest of it, like the outcome, um, you know, guilty, not guilty, acquitted, mistrial, hung jury, all these things are, are not really part of the government's interest, because why would it care? The government. Exactly. If if it is indeed the Department of Justice, then that should be the only end goal. That should be the only end game. Right. But that's not what I have seen in these January 6 trials. I have seen firsthand with my own eyes sitting in the courtroom 
I have seen the deliberate manipulation of evidence. I've seen the deliberate um, expungement or the, um, uh, the the courts block the judges uh, in a, a highly prejudicial way, allowing inculpatory evidence and excluding exculpatory evidence that was equal and opposite and should have should have countered each other's in any fair-minded jury's eyes. And, and I've seen that block. I've seen the, the, the DOJ and the judges collude. I've seen, witnessed, and heard the FBI agents lie on the stands. I'm talking about bald-faced lies. And as you know, I've had access to the 41,000 hours worth of videotape. And one of my stories is, is I am going to show that conclusively. I've got the smoking gun. I have the kill shot to prove a case where that happened in one of these trials. On top of that, they're telling you to be quiet. And uh, there was something in your subpoena, I, I believe, that mentioned something very similar to what the, the instinct of we're not happy about you right. speaking out with your original press relief. Can you kind of flesh that out for people? Yeah, I'll just I'll just read it. Uh, this is the, this came uh, is penned by the same uh, AUSA who told me that they were not happy about my press release uh, 20 months ago. And the cover letter of my subpoena actually says this in the final paragraph before her signature. And I quote, although you are not required to do so, you are requested not to disclose the existence of this subpoena. Just let that set in for a minute, Kyle. Yeah, just read that again. I think that's worth a, that's worth a repeat. Yeah. Although you are not required to do so, you are requested not to disclose the existence of this subpoena. Now, let me keep going from there. And any such disclosure could impede the investigation being conducted and thereby interfere with the enforcement of the law. They're threatening you with obstruction. Absolutely. That, 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 that's it. All that paragraph was designed for was because she knew that the last time they threatened me with prosecution, that I executed a media offensive against that threat. And they decided to just go ahead and uh, uh, draw the line right here. They put a red line down. And so they admit in the first, uh, before the first comma, that it's, it's not illegal for me to do so. Although you are not required to do so, it says, you are requested not to disclose the existence of the subpoena. We hear about grand jury subpoenas all the time in the in the news. Well, the first thing is, is they sent you a non-sealed, publicly available, through public right. means, they sent you a letter, a document that you have physical, um, you know, they didn't come and show it to you and say, hey, we're showing you this and then we're taking it and you need to comply with it. There's nothing classified about what was there. There's nothing that gives them the right to conceal this information. And once it's in your possession, you can do with it whatever you like. Yeah. It, it reminds me of something that happened to our friend Steve Friend. He was uh, the, on the recipient end of a investigative target letter from the Internal Affairs Unit that basically said, you are, are being told in no uncertain terms that you are not allowed to disclose the existence of this particular investigation into you to your spouse. You can't disclose this to your attorneys. And and none of these things have any legal standing. And yet they're out there, you know, they're out there going and attacking people in the public space simply under threat of force. And, and for me, this is where it gets really, really scary because who in the world told them that this was a technique that they could utilize? 
And how high up does it go to approve that sort of thing? How how far has our government fallen where they think that they are able to weigh in on people under threat of of essentially violence, right? Because we're talking about men with guns coming to your home. And this this is not just a uh, a warning not to exercise my First Amendment privilege as a journalist. This is a warning against my First Amendment privilege privilege as a citizen writ large in this particular paragraph in this. Uh, well, and there's, there's no legal distinction in the Constitution of what is and what is not the press. No. You know, there's some case law that has basically established what we would consider regular press. People use yeah. the term citizen journalist, but I think it's wrong. I think we're all just citizens and you have the ability to engage in journalism should you choose yeah. to. Yeah, you can start a newspaper. I mean, whether you're Ben Franklin or Thomas Paine, you can start a, a, a flyer, uh, you know, a campaign or you can start a newspaper. And neither one of them had to apply for a permit or a license to do so. And we're seeing that in the, in, in a really weird way, the, the, the sort of sycophantic uh, government, you know, mouthpieces that exist in the media right now. They're running their stories by the government. They're getting their stories from the government. I've seen this in our own sort of releases. We, we've shared some information and I'll just kind of, you know, let you kind of opine on this in a second. But some of the things that I have have exposed Chris Ray doing some of his work and, and, you know, flying around in the jet and all this kind of thing worked with a journalist, you know, for daily wire, Brandon Dre, good guy. We went out there, we put together a piece. I gave him all the background information. I told him where to look and what to dig. He came up with it. The FBI issued a statement and he included the gist of the statement, but he didn't directly quote them because the direct quote was sort of bullshit. As you mentioned earlier, right. it, it just was, it was false. They, they denied everything and then uh, and they said it in a pretty way. And so him not quoting them got him another phone call saying we're really displeased with the fact that you didn't include our entire quote as though they had some right to explain to people how that they were supposed to frame an argument against what was said and that they had some right to tell people how to think. Right. And a lot of this goes in. Have you have you been following this sort of CISA uh, development, this sort of cognitive infrastructure uh, usage? Are you familiar with that? Not, not, not sure. Well, let me let me bang this off you. So uh, in 2018, President Trump signed into law the creation of the new federal agency. It's the Cybersecurity Infrastructure right, right, Security right. Administration, CISA. Right. And CISA, like every other government agency, has been involved in mission creep, right? They've been slowly gaining um, authorities, and they've been basically pushing themselves into spaces that didn't exist previously. And one of the things that they have written, they have committed to this in writing, because infrastructure is their mandate, that they actually have a duty to act in the cognitive infrastructure space. Now, just... Think about the government doublespeak that's involved in that. But what would you imagine cognitive infrastructure looks like? <laughs> You're a smart guy. You've, you've been around government uh, doublespeak for a while. Well, I, I well, first of all, if, if they say cognitive infrastructure, I would say that would be all encompassing. I don't think that there's any limit on that uh, uh, nomenclature at all. And and the way they frame it is essentially they're talking about your brain matter, your, your gray yeah. matter between yeah. your ears. They're right. going to police what's going on in there and make sure that it's safe. And the way that they do it, and this is critical to what we just spoke about again, and I'm, I'll let you kind of come back at me with that. But by by protecting the cognitive infrastructure, it gave them license to censure. It gave them the license to make sure that what goes in is only the safe ideas. This right. is a big piece of way where the Twitter files and the Missouri v. Biden case is gone. And even in your case, where they tell you, don't go out there and share this information. They don't want any of the bad information to go out without their spin. Yeah. And, and I'm not even and I'm not even opining in here. They're literally just telling us this in real time. We can go out there and observe in their own words that they think that they have a right to tell you how you should think because it's the safest way for the government. Now they're telling you that you can't even disclose the existence with with threat of force and under threat of investigation for for obstruction, but with no right to do so. Literally, they're explicitly forbidden from doing that by yeah. our Constitution, which in theory they actually swore an oath to. 
And, and you know, one of the things that we have done over the last four days since I was notified that the subpoena was coming was, you know, spent hours on the phone with both my attorneys and we're just perplexed at what this felony charge is. Again, it's a grand jury and they were going to charge me with a felony 20 months ago. They're, I don't know if you remember in our first conversation, I told you they were going to charge me with interstate racketeering. Right. Because you made money off your video. Right. It was absurd on its face. I mean, every single independent journalist on the planet either has a Substack or a locals page or uh, they license their videos if they're a, a videographer uh, to. And, and my videos were used in the HBO documentary, the New York Times documentary, uh, as well as uh, news agencies all over the world uh, licensed use of my videos. And that's just, the, you know, that's the way it's done. Uh, I mean, on January 7th, I had I had licensing agencies calling me saying, we want to represent your video. Right. Well, why, why did they know to call me, Kyle? Because I was already established as a guy in the media, independent though I may be, I wasn't working for a big company, but I was already established enough to know that by the time my information went out in the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the interwebs on the evening of January 6th, that there were people that were, uh, attuned enough and uh, aware enough of me and my work to follow me and, and begin calling me. I mean, the first call I got the next morning was from Fox news and said, Hey, we want to, we want to, uh, how much for all your video. And then the next call I got was, uh, you know, the, the, uh, aggregators, the Storyful, And I ended up signing a deal with them directly. And so the, uh, the and just for people to really dig into that, literally you were threatened with a charge of racketeering. Yes which is to say an organized crime that you were in this conspiracy to travel between interstate lines and videotape um, something that you could not have known was going to happen because nobody else seemed to, because apparently even the Capitol police missed it. And so did all the intelligence agencies, although we don't necessarily believe that, but there was a, uh, you know, apparently it escaped law enforcement, but it didn't escape Steve, Steve Baker who traveled between States with the intention of videoing something to make money off it. Hey, right. You know, I'm, I'm one of those smart guys. That's you know? it. So, uh, and, and, and that's, that's the absurdity of the claim. That's why it's absurd on its face. That's right. Because either no, they no. admit that they couldn't have seen, foreseen this, or it was foreseeable and they failed, in which case there's a and bigger that, problem than you. The very nature of an interstate racketeering or racketeering charge is that, first of all, there has to be collusion. First of all, I had to have foreknowledge of a criminal event, and then I crossed state lines, therefore, to profit or to, you know, uh, be remunerated for the, my participation in that criminal event. Sure. And, and so when, you know, with a charge of up to 20 years in prison for that. And so that's what they notified that I me that I was going to be charged with the first time. Obviously our assumption at the time was that they were just trying to scare me into a, you know, quick plea deal down to the glorified trespassing charge and, and get their notch on the belt and send me on my way. And uh, in the earliest conversations with the AUSA and my attorney, <laughs> the question was from her, uh, your, your, your client's not really planning on going to trial with this, is he? And she, and my attorney was like, well, you've seen the shit he writes. <laughs> he's not gonna, he's not going to bend a knee. And that's where we're And Here we are 20 months later. And that's exactly where we are again, a grand jury investigation, uh, as you know, and this is, this is mind boggling to me and you know it more intimately than I, you know, even though I've, I've read hundreds of January 6, uh, charging documents, you always have the affiant. It's almost always a, you know, an FBI agent who, mm -hmm. who writes up the criminal complaint and describes in detail the reasons why they believe that there was a crime committed or four or eight or 11 crimes committed that this particular person needs to be charged with. And then that's handed over to the DOJ. They make the decision, it goes through a grand jury, whatever. And so that's the process. So 
as, as my attorney met with him yesterday morning to ask this particular FBI agent, um, uh, special agent Noyes, and he says, uh, so what, what's going on with my client? Is, are, are you guys, I mean, are y'all reopening up the case against him or whatever? And he goes, Oh man, I, I, I have no idea. I don't, I, I mean, I don't know. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, uh, you, you, you lying bastard. First of all, you were the guy after my first interview who wrote up this document that you felt like that there was sufficient grounds for me to be charged with interstate racketeering. Are you effing kidding me? What did you see in our interview that gave you any idea that that would be a, a valid assertion or, or, or criminal charge? I mean, and what makes me different than any other journalist paid by any agency anywhere in the world from the New York times all the way down to like a, a Substack subscription based journalist. What, what sets me apart that I get that? Cause I'm the only one out of the uh, over 1100 people charged with, uh, uh, January six offenses to this point. <laughs> I've never seen the word interstate racketeering associated with any other defendant. What, what made me different? What did I know? And, and what you said earlier is exactly how I should take it maybe as a badge of honor or a compliment. Because if their if their intelligence failed them that day, if Capitol Police intelligence failed them that day, if uh, uh, Metro PD's intelligence failed that day, and I'm the only one that knew, you're it. Yeah, you. I mean, you're the only guy in the know in in America. Apparently, good good for me. Yeah, well done. And it it is it is kind of a stagger. Like I said, I as someone who doesn't have an interest in any of this stuff, when I used to do investigations, it, it's like, can I disprove my case? That's the way science works. That's the way that a real investigator works from a skeptical position. It's like, let's start with the supposition that he did these things. Well, if he did, then he would have had to have the jump on all the intelligence agencies, on all the different law enforcement agencies. Well, that's illogical. And yeah. that's going to be the first line of defense. Maybe I'd be a good investigator for a defense attorney because so many of these times I see these, these questions and the line of questions should be really straightforward. It's like the gotchas are the same on either side. If you, yeah. if you start with one premise and you go to disprove it and it's really easy that's a really bad case. That's not a case that I want to go on and, and move forward with. And I used to sh shoot down cases all the time when they would they'd pitch them to you. They'd go, well, you know, this person got defrauded out of this money. It's like, okay, well, where's the fraud? Well, uh, someone showed up and said these things and then they signed a document. So they voluntarily engaged in transactions, didn't receive payment for it, thought they would, broke the terms of service for their credit card company for accepting, you know, credit cards with no ID. I mean, it sounds like a bummer. But but is there a crime here and can I actually prove it? And I don't think that I can. And so if you go into those attitudes like that, you should be basically trying to walk away from cases, not because you don't want to do cases, but because they're not good cases. Right. And and what is the case against you in that case? Like I said, you're going to have to argue basically that your knowledge and your intelligence base as an independent journalist running around the world with a sub stack and with a uh, with a locals account and, uh, and some independent subscribers were able to get the jump on the entire U.S. Uh, law enforcement apparatus that was running in the Capitol on that day. It's. It's yeah. absurd on its face. One would think, and yet, don't obstruct them, please. Right. Well, and this is this is what my suspicion is, and I, 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 I having seen so many of these trials related to January six, is that my suspicion is that, that they are trying to entrap me in a, a process crime of some sort right now. I think that that's what they're up to. Like for instance, there's been over twenty months since I had that. Uh, it's been well, almost two years since my interview with the FBI. Sure. 
And uh, in that too, you know, when I left that, the, when I left the interview that day and the closing comments, you know, we were laughing and joking with the agents and friendly shaking hands and telling stories, just, you know, being a bunch of guys. And so uh, one of the things they said, you look, uh, look until this thing is all settled, be sure don't delete anything from your devices. No, don't delete anything from your phone. Don't delete anything from your computer. I'm like, okay, yeah, no, no, no problem, whatever. Well, Kyle, that's been two years ago. I have a new phone. I have a new computer. Right. I, uh, before, I, I, I mean, the, the reason I got a new computer is I was running out of memory in my old computer. I, I trashed, you know, untold numbers of gigabytes worth of uh, data out of that computer. Since sure. Then. As, I, as, I, as people do, as they move forward, technology continues to right. move forward. Your abilities, your needs uh, are going to change. Most people swap a phone out there. I mean, here's the other thing. You go out there after a Steve Baker and say, listen, he, uh, you know, he got rid of his phone and we believe that's an obstruction or we believe that he was trying to conceal evidence. And then you go, what's the regular turnaround rate that uh, that is an exchange program with T-Mobile for a phone that is being used? Oh, it's yeah. 12 months you're eligible for an upgrade or six months you're eligible for an upgrade. So the average American can go and live his life. But Steve Baker has to live in pause in uh, in 2021. Is that what has to happen? And that's absurd. And so I, I am absolutely convinced that this subpoena for my uh, my videos, because first of all, all right, if they're looking at me, Kyle, they've got me on hundreds of hours of other people's videos that day. Right. They've got me on 1738 CCTV, you know, capital cameras that day. They've got me on all manner of cell phone video that they have captured from that day. They've got me on Metropolitan Police body cams that day. Mm -hmm. They have enough video on me to determine whether I committed any crime of any kind that day. I've already said, yes, I was inside the Capitol building. Okay. So are, first of all, are you going to selectively prosecute me and not the other 80 to hundred mainstream media journalists that followed the story into the building that day? Okay. Right. So you are going to do that because why? Because I didn't work for one of those, um, uh, um, cartel journalists uh, that provide you guys with information every day, or is it because I was independent or is it because my narrative did not comport with the um, Pelosi uh, establish and preserve the narrative of uh, January 6 uh, theme? Uh, what, I mean, what is the reason why I'm being selectively prosecuted, but more importantly, you know, beyond any shadow of a doubt, there is, it's irrefutable by all available evidence that I did no violence. I, broke no stuff. I did not attack any law enforcement officers. I did not parade. I was not wearing Trump gear. I didn't carry a flag. I didn't chant. I never chanted USA, USA. I never said whose house, our house. I never sang the Star Spangled Banner. I behaved as a journalist that day from the moment I arrived until the moment I left that building. And what are you looking for? And, th and there is no good answer. No, and what, where is the felony in this? except that they're trying to create one right now. And that's what I think that they're up to. Sadly, I think you're right. And uh, I think that's the country that we're living in, which is why they've discredited. One of the things that has bothered me so much and people get really upset about Nazi references, but uh, but they're so easy to yeah. make. It's so easy to draw parallels between what happened in the Third Reich, what happened during COVID tyranny and so on. They, they, they're almost a one-to-one -one mixture. And one of the first things that went on in the Third Reich was a uh, an undermining of the judiciary and the credibility of the judiciary. And so I've covered it on my program, the first letter to judges, um, how they expected the judiciary to rule. And we were seeing a very similar sort of action plan. Uh, the fact that they're all being charged in in D.C., that they're all being charged under, you know, under a very favorable situation to the government. As you mentioned, 
the government has basically made arguments earlier on that there's so much video, there's no way they could give access to all of it. And so people are not entitled to a, uh, a, uh, a strong defense, a fair defense that they've thrown out Brady, um, decisions that they are not giving access to the exculpatory information that should exist. Sure. And then we have people that are perjuring themselves and I'm not seeing Giglio being revealed after all those things. Mm-hmm. It, it It's just mind numbing. Where does this go? Uh, that's the other real question. Uh, you've got more years on the planet than me. You've got maybe uh, uh, closer to the fire, but also you've been kind of a disinterested observer who's trying to document things. Where in the hell does this go? Because I think people are just absolutely flabbergasted and people like uh, we, me included. We may have talked about this in our, our previous marathon, uh, but the bottom line is, is, and this is the most important thing that the American people need to know. And this is what I got since I've talked to you. I've actually met with Jim Jordan. I've met with Representative Mike Johnson from Louisiana. Uh, I've met with uh, uh, Troy Nell's staff. But the, the most significant conversation I had was when I had with Jim Jordan. This was two months ago. And I got in his face and I, you know, I said, sir, with all due respect, and I was addressing the fact that he had no intention to address January 6 issues in the weaponization committee. And I said, with all due respect, you do not know and understand what's going on in these courtrooms. And I said, let me just give you a couple of examples. And I did. And I, I not only told him that I had two stories that I couldn't bring to the American public without his protection. Why do I need, why does a journalist need congressional protection to tell a story? It's because of the weaponization of the government against people like me. And Surely. That I'm doing. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, and I said this, and this is where, where I'm going, is that the most important thing that we're seeing in these January 6 trials is the weaponization against the First Amendment. It's not, they're not, they're not, uh, they don't care that somebody uh, took a, a flagpole to an officer or sprayed him with some bear spray or, or whatever. If you, if you took a flagpole to an officer and whatever, whatever that crime qualifies you for in terms of your sentencing, if it's 24 months in jail or whatever the case may be, if you also additionally posted on your Facebook page videos and you chanting and you taunting the police and you doing other things like that, then you probably got 48 months. Right. All right. If you were a grandmother and you're 60 years old and you walked through the Capitol for 10 minutes and you took a couple of selfies and you walked out, you probably were able to plead down to two years probation, $500 fine, you know, 50 hours community service, whatever like that. Go back home and try to repair your life because you were kicked out of all of your clubs and your organizations and, you know, your church and everything else. So uh, after your arrest. And so if you were a grandmother who walked into the building for 10 minutes and you took a couple of selfies and you chanted USA, USA, you got two months in prison, four, six, eight, maybe. Mm-hmm. If you're an independent journalist and you work for an, you're an independent journalist, let's be very clear about this. And you only had a cell phone in your hand and your name is Luke Mogelson and you walked through an, smashed window. You didn't go through an open door. You went through a smashed window and you went into the Senate and you caught the famous iconic video of the QAnon shaman praying inside the Senate chamber. If that was you and you submitted your story to the New Yorker and you used the word insurrection and insurrectionists in your story, you haven't been charged with a crime. But if you were a professional videographer from Pensacola, Florida, and you showed up with all of your high-end expensive professional camera gear 
And you went through the exact same window at almost the exact same time as Luke Mogelson. And then you paralleled him throughout all the entire Capitol and into the Senate chamber, recording the same events that Luke Mogelson did. But when you went in and you were a Trump guy and you got caught up in the moment and you said, USA, 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 you got eight months in prison. That's the only difference between those two men's activities that day. So what are they suppressing? The same thing that they're trying to suppress in the cover letter of my subpoena. They're trying to take this away from us. They're trying to take our words, our speech, our thoughts, our cognitive, cognitive abilities. And that's what these trials are about. I mean, these are, these are um, look, the, the Oath Keepers were, were, were convicted of um, thought crimes. They were right. convicted of violence. Yeah, they were convicted of conspiracies that didn't actually happen. I've talked right. about this with prosecutors. I've never seen conspiracy. The only conspiracies that I've ever seen charged when the actual crime did not go down was a crime of violence that was in progress and interrupted because of some special knowledge the government may have had. The great example of that would be you have a wire up, you know there's a conspiracy to move drugs around and do this other thing. And then in the middle of it, they say, by the way, we're going to go off this guy and we're en route. And then you go interrupt them because you have a duty to sort of protect the public or you have a duty to to stop and notify this person that there's imminent harm coming their way because you know about it. And so the government will go and arrest people en route to a conspiracy to commit murder, let's say, in aid of racketeering or so on. And then they'll get hit with the conspiracy of a thing that didn't happen but was progressing. We have, after the fact, no interdiction conspiracy charges that were done without the conspiracy ever being enacted, whatever that conspiracy was. The thought Uh, of it was enough. No proof. In fact, in the Oath Keepers trial, all seven FBI agents who testified testified under cross-examination that never one single time did they ever find evidence of an order from Oath Keeper leadership to enter the Capitol, to storm the Capitol, to harm Congress members, to interdict the certification of the election. And then once the prosecution realized that they were getting their butts handed to them by the defense, about one third of the way through that nine week trial, they switched gears and it became a conspiracy of um, that was hatched on the Capitol steps in the moment. It was a, a conspiracy of mental telepathy. Right. It's, it's instantaneous um, yes. conspiracy people. And and that was it was a spontaneous combustion of conspiracy with no words spoken between any of those individuals. And, uh, and, and I'll, I'll never forget, I was there for the sentencing hearing and Judge Amit Mehta said to Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers, and this is a paraphrase, but he said, uh, he said, you're smart, you're eloquent, and you know how to lead men. Therefore, you're a danger to society. I'm going to put you away for 18 years. That's it right there. Right there. I think so much of these these prosecutions have not just been going after people, but making examples in order to say that uh, don't ever do this again, don't ever gather again, don't ever speak out again. I, it's, this is what it feels like for me, and and I'm a little bit too emotionally involved in this for for any kind of journalistic activity. This is this is certainly not that. This is advocacy at my you know I'll, I'll own it, and it's definitely um, and it's an emotional opinion yeah. that I have. But watching the way that people are treated, watching the subjugation of, of whistleblowers and, and making the examples of them, the way that my buddy Garrett said, he went out in front of Congress and said, this government will crush you. This government should have no interest in one thing or another. It should only be interested in providing the service that it does and be limited in that that scope. And instead, yeah. it is aggressively, aggressively pursuing actions that benefit not the people, but the government specifically, like the the agencies of the government are out there pursuing their own ends. That That is the definition of weaponization to me. 
Um, well, you have I'm, any you have any thoughts on on where this um, where this ends uh, for you? It, I, where where it ends for me right now is still an unknown. I I have to, we have made the decision as you know in this in this in a uh, subpoena for my video. I have the ability to opt to send that to them electronically or to actually hand it over to the agent uh, in charge. And so I, uh, in consultation with my attorney yesterday, we decided that I'm going to appear. I'm going up next Wednesday and I'm going to face the grand jury. I'm going to say, what the hell's up? Mm -hmm. They so, do have the possibility of at least asking questions during that, uh, which is a possibility. So that might be interesting for you. Yeah, it should be interesting. But uh I, it would the easy route would have me would have been for me to just hand them a flash drive with my videos on it, but I've decided to uh, to make an appearance there next Wednesday in DC right. at the district courthouse. So where it goes from there, I don't know. Where I go from there, I don't know. I, you know, I, I'll I'll tell you that I, you know, I've had, I I told my children more than you know two years ago. They're they're adults. I told them I said you're there, there's a because of the work I'm doing. I said there's a high likelihood that, that your father will not uh, finish his life as a free man. And I prepped them for that, you know, for a long time. And, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not either patting myself on the, on the back or are trying to, um, uh, execute a grift here of some sort, but Kyle, I think, you know, I think I've told you offline before one of the stories that I'm working on and, um, it's explosive. And I have read, um, house weaponization committee investigators have been read into this story. I spent four and a half hours with them two weeks ago. Um, uh, investigative uh, uh, members of the Heritage Foundation have been read into this story, uh, as well as uh, a couple of other friendly journalists, so that if anything happens to me, if I'm Clintonized or Arkansas or whatever you want to call it, um, this story is still going to come out. And it is a January 6th story that is explosive. And everyone who has seen this story so far has said that this is going to be the first a cornerstone of the House of Cards to be pulled out from the January 6th narrative. And the most significant part of this story, and, and this is why I don't believe that this timing of this re-engagement of our reinitiation into um, uh, prosecuting me some 20 months later is that I have, I have absolutely no doubt that they are not aware of this story. And it specifically implicates the FBI and the DOJ in conspiracy and cover-up, uh, specifically in these a uh, uh, couple of these trials and not only that but the fact that we know that senior fbi executives were pushing the specific narrative that i think that you can pull out on um you know amongst other things but that they are committed to it they yeah. committed their careers to it and they rode they rode that wave up to the top of uh, positions that they shouldn't have ever been holding and yeah. then um and they have a vested interest in, in concealing it i think yeah so that's uh where where this leads is um uh, it's interesting. It's uh, it, what a time to be alive, huh? A strange time indeed, and uh, a strange time, sad time for America. Like I said, I do believe that the America that I grew up in would have invaded the America that I live in. And yeah. I will say it again because it's this is what the banana republic looks like. Uh, and when you start undermining your judiciary, then you end up in a world where you can't trust it. Uh, tell people if they're interested in your journalism where they can go and do that. We'll throw that up there. It's going to be in the show notes as well, but uh, give them kind of a verbal if you would. Yeah, the the uh, the easy way and the short way to type it is just to go to um, tpc4usa.com, tpc4usa.com, and that is my uh, locals uh, community. It's free to subscribe, but for as little as five dollars a month, as we mentioned before, you can support the work that I am doing. 
and I've not set up a Gibson Go yet. I'm, I'm not going to do that unless I am in, indicted. But um, yeah, there, there we go. There's the image for that. And then, of course, uh, with the same exact hand, handle, TPC4USA, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook and True Social. Uh, so it's I've, I've simplified it. And then, of course, obviously, my Rumble channel is where I put all my videos out. And the Rumble channel is the same thing. TPC, the number four USA, they can go That's and search it. that and they'll find that you did a really good uh, interview recently with uh, TK Johnson, as well as yeah. a bunch of others and some of your, um, some of your digging into what did and did not get investigated on the January 6th uh, front, which uh, is a lot of things that did not, that seemed very yeah. interesting. And a lot of things that have been have investigated that have yet to be revealed. That's fair. A couple of juicy bits coming. Well, I hope that uh, folks, I hope you can share this video. And, and the reason why is because uh, the noise is part of the safety cloud that we build for guys like Steve, for guys like me. Honestly, this is one of the reasons why I do what I do. It's one of the reasons why Steve has no choice but to do what he's doing. Why people like Garrett O'Boyle and, and, and Steve Friend, like my buddies who have done the, the, the verbal cover we have, the media cover is that they know in the, in the court of public appeal, the case is already being waged and, uh, and they're trying to stifle it literally in word they are putting it in writing that they would like to stop that sort of thing so they can just have you shut up and take your lumps and uh and the government can continue on with its weaponized process so that's really scary stuff steve thanks for sharing a lot of the stuff thanks always for being candid with us and uh you know anytime you want to come back on and chat we can do it for long or short as you like um and we will promote this stuff as much i'm going to try to get some other uh some other podcasts and some other uh types involved so We'll awesome. keep getting your story out there. Um, and then your your handles on Truth and Twitter are the same. The TP number four USA. TPC, exactly. the number four USA, um, which I follow, folks. You'll see me post some of uh, Steve's stuff. Thanks so much for joining me this morning, buddy. Um, I'm going to go Alan. down and uh, shut the day down and then uh, panic about uh, how bad our, our existence is right now in this country, which is <laughs> which is terrible. Every time we talk, it's not it's not a great feeling, although I enjoy but, your company. But we're, we're in it. We're in it for the long haul. That's it. Yeah, no other choice on that. All right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. We are streamed live from Liberty Hill, Texas. We do want to thank a couple of people. First of all, we're going to thank you for uh, being here and for joining us. We want to thank uh, the new monthly subscribers that we have on Rumble. And uh, we've got a, a five-star review. As you know, you can post them on Apple. Nearly 650 strong so far. And we appreciate every one of them, including this one from Page N-O-R. I don't know if there was more to that. Maybe Page Noir. It says, uh, always informative, Kyle and all, I love your podcast. I learned so much, and I enjoy your guests. I hope you enjoyed having Steve Friend, uh, Steve Baker on here, rather. Uh, the Pragmatic Constitutionalist, ladies and gentlemen, TPC, The Pragmatic Constitutionalist, the number four USA, TPC, number four USA. Uh, don't forget to like this on Rumble. If you haven't done it already, scroll down, hit that like button. Leave us a comment there. If you have something, you can always go and you can tweet or you can truth it at uh, Steve Baker and uh, you know give him your support as things go on. You can sign up for his locals if you like. And please make sure that you are not, if you're not subscribed to our Rumble channel, that you do so. We really appreciate those as well. Until then, uh, we'll see you guys again on Wednesday. Sorry to leave you on a heavy note on this Tuesday, but uh, we went a little long because I think the story involves a little bit more than normal. Again, we'll see you again on Tuesday and uh, hang in there. It's going to be an interesting day. Thanks for listening to the Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live weekdays on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter, Truth Social, and Instagram at Kyle Serafin.